0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Cracked Up, the podcast where we talk about everything that makes us feel broken and Randy, help me out here.
1: Yeah, we're going to talk about just how hard this life can be and what it's like to not feel okay. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Candace Crawford, who is a friend of mine and someone I met a few years ago working in the South Bronx. And when I think back to when I met Candice, I feel like we didn't get to know each other as much in the workplace because I feel like there was a short period we worked together and then I was transferred to a different program. And I feel like we got to know each other better at the like after work karaoke nights. Which there's <laughs> one
2: tomorrow, by the way, um, which I'm excited.
1: About. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going but... to make
2: sure that you get that invite um, so we can make sure that you can show
1: up, too. <laughs> Anyway, tell us a little bit about yourself, Candice. I'm so happy to have you on.
2: Sure. So to not sound so robotic, because I sometimes do a lot of spiels, of, you know, in introducing myself, I am um, Dr. Candace Crawford. I am a licensed mental health counselor in the state of New York. I own and operate a group mental health practice in the Bronx, where we primarily work with folks who b- belong to lots of marginalized populations, but primarily work with lots of women of color who have endured trauma. Um, And I'm also um, a professor of counseling, and I teach um, full-time at Capella University.
0: A big part of both of our desire to have you on is specifically what you just said, working with people of color, marginalized groups with mental health issues. Um, And I know you've done extensive research on that. So can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yes. So I've done um, lots of research. So my dissertation focused on... More specifically, cross-racial supervision. So Black supervisors working cross-racially with white supervisees and the experiences of that. Um, But I've also done um, a lot of research as it relates to social justice and multicultural issues in both counseling and in counseling supervision, you know, as it relates to um, spirituality or even uh, ethical decision making Or even the Black experience as a whole and recognizing that, you know, identifying as being a Black individual is not a monolith and that there is this variety of experiences that Black folks endure and and still, you know, have that relatability that, you know, people really are seeking, you know, particularly when they are trying to um, seek out mental health um, services.
0: So you just said something. Randy and I had like a side text conversation yesterday and this kind of came up a little bit. The spirituality component, I do feel like it becomes challenging, especially in communities and cultures that are brought together so much communally by religion. It almost Mm. becomes a challenge to doing the mental health work. Mm. Is that something you've come across?
2: So- First, I always just kind of talk about the the distinction between spirituality and religion. And okay. I always make sure that I understand how how salient someone's religiosity or spirituality is like in, in that client's life. So that way I can speak to the intersection of, of that, right? Because people can come in and say that they're religious because they grew up religious, right? So I don't know about your mm-hmm. own kind of like spiritual religious beliefs, but like I grew up in the church, but- I don't know the last time I really stepped into the side of church for any type of religious, you know, practice outside of a wedding or something like that, right? Same,
0: yeah,
2: (laughs) right. And so, you know, we can ask this question about like, you know, are you religious or are you spiritual? But it's really important for us to kind of like really uncover what that means for that individual. Um, So I do a lot of that uncovering so that way I can see how it can aid and support or be a detriment to someone's, you know, mental health, right? Because a lot of folks come in with religious trauma. You know, they're trying to leave religious groups, or people are trying to understand their own religious identity. So even when we talk about, you know, racial identity and things of that nature, there's there are developmental models similar to mm-hmm. religion and spirituality, there are identity and development, or excuse me, there are religious developmental models and things of that nature. So it's so important to have those discussions. And I love having those yep. discussions um, yeah. because I think that they're so, you know, important.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I love I love that you love to have these conversations and I really appreciate it. And I feel like that's what really stuck out, you know, when I met you, I always remember, and I'm like, she had this really interesting dissertation, and it was about, you know, like racial discrepancies, and it really stood out to me because when I, you know, I first started my career in the South Bronx when we first met, and you know, I'm working in this marginalized community. There's, you know, a, I would say majority of the demographic is people of color, and here I am, this white woman, and I'm like facilitating these groups, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing individual counseling, and I feel like it was kind of like this elephant in the room. That you know, no one really was addressing at this point. I feel like there was like you know whispers about it, right? But like no one was having these conversations about what it was like for. And I feel like a lot of our that population that we worked with was court mandated. So not only am I the group facilitator, I'm also this person of authority in a way, right? Because it was like you know if you if you if you were court mandated, we also had power over your like court reports and you know drug testing and all this stuff. So. It's so interesting to to consider what what it was like to be maybe a patient or person of color and have me, the blonde hair, blue eyed woman as this, you know, per- person in authority in a sense. So I feel like these are just really important conversations to have. And then I fast forward to where I am now. I work in Midtown in a private practice. And I would say most of my population is now white. And it's, it's such a stark difference for me. First, you know, where we worked is what also sparked my dissertation
2: topic. So, you know, being at um, Argus community and working in the South Bronx, because it wasn't just you, there were also other, you know, white clinicians who were working with, you know, these marginalized um, folks. And I was their supervisor, right? So I had to, you know, do a lot of teaching and educating and understanding and assessing and making sure that these things Mm -hmm. were being addressed um, as best as I could. And then also trying to understand that the the cross-racial dynamics that we had, you know, at between supervisor sure. and supervisee. And so yeah. it's so interesting that you're saying that, right? Because sometimes it just kind of got dismissed. Now, I don't what? want to throw that organization under the bus by any means, but I also felt <laughs> like there was a lot more space or there could have been more space for those things to be addressed. Because sure. what we did see in that, in that organization that there were a lot more folks who held power, whether they were, you know, clinicians or supervisors, who were of the white majority, you know, mm-hmm. trying to work with this pop, you know, particular population and it wasn't right. always addressed like what that meant for, you know, the, the clients or even for you as a clinician. So um, yeah. yeah. So my, my work there is definitely what sparked my, my dissertation. Wow. I didn't know that.
0: Just bringing it back on that. Like, it seems like, and I'm, I'm also basing this off of just firsthand life experience of people I know, like uh, multi- cultural relationships where it seems like there is still very much a stigma mm-hmm. in the black community in other cultures of mental health practice and work and seeking out mental health help mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of their different variables. Um, can you speak a little to that like why? because that seems like that that may also be part of the problem of why there there aren't more people in leadership advocating for the, the people of color experience in mental mm-hmm. health facilities. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think we have to kind of throw it all the way back to just thinking about, you know, psychology and how it ha- has derived. When we think about all the theorists that, you know, we kind a of, lot like of relate white men. to. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: And the studies are being done on a whole lot of white men.
2: Right. And so exactly. And so when, and even as we are growing and we're, you know, having more, um, theories and approaches and things like that kind of like be more multicultural based. um, Mm -hmm. We have to recognize that historically it's been like, okay, this could only be for, you know, white folks. Also, Mm -hmm. you know, it has been seen in different populations. We were just kind of talking about religion and spirituality. And so when we think about some, not all, but some marginalized, you know, communities or, you know, communities of color there is that more strong salient identity of being more religious. And when we think about folks who, you know, had mental health issues, it was like, can we leave it up into, you know, to God's hands? Right. Yeah, so it yeah. it was never this, how can we supplement the, the the work and the knowledge that we have as it relates to our religion? But it was like, you can't do that because, you know, Jesus is here. You just need to pray about it. So that's one well, thing. Um, but then also we have to think about the the language that was used behind people who struggled with mental health. People mm. weren't talking about it. They brushed it under the rug, right? Sure. And then you didn't have people that looked like you. So why the hell would you go to someone that you couldn't trust? Because why would you right. trust them? And, you know, try to get that help and support. I am thankful that, you know, in today's day and age, we have more access, we have more opportunities for people to have that representation Um, Mm -hmm. and people really kind of like talking more um, avidly about it, especially on social media. And so we see a lot more of that increase. And that's why I think the last few years, there's been this really big boom of folks of color really seeking out mental health, but the stigma still exists. And I see it even when people who are coming into the office, that stigma Mm -hmm. is still there.
0: Well, there's also the added, like you take the religion out, there's this added staying within the realm of black history like you were Mm -hmm. enslaved and then you had to struggle like struggle was just a part of life and so there's this like social acceptance of struggle is life Mm
2: -hmm. and so
0: seeking out the additional help yeah you just have all these extra barriers that are just
2: ingrained in you and exactly so then we also have to talk about the 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 that what well, you're mentioning like the enslavement, but also the traumatic experience that, that came along with that, right? So it's not even just being enslaved, um, that trauma we now know has been passed down genera- genera- yes, yes. Um yeah. but also trying to overcome everything that, you know, came after that. And so even though we can go back to slavery, we still exist in this society where there's so much um, oppression that exists, right? You know, I think more often than not, you know, people want to say like, oh, well, you know, slavery is over. Yes. And we have to recognize that systemic issues exist. Right. So just because someone looks like they have it, just because we had a black president doesn't mean that system systematic racism or, you know, institutional racism doesn't exist. And when we talk about that struggle, you know, I think that sometimes people want to think about the struggle, but also with struggle comes resilience. And so more often than not, people are trying to, you know, find that resilience to make sure that they can, you know, continue to, to maintain against systems that are continuing to, you know,
1: continuing to oppress them. I think the first study done on transgenerational trauma was done on the Jews after the Holocaust. Do you know, Candice, has there been any studies on people of color, you know, based on enslavement and, and all that history?
2: There are, and I won't, I won't be able to point you in the right direction, but there are. Um, right. And not that I won't be able to point you in the right direction. I don't have the specifics, you know, specific research to um, to cite at this moment. However, I'm happy to provide that information at some point. And so that way, if you yeah. wanted to add it into like the, um, the, the show so right notes up. or something like yeah, that. We yeah, we definitely do that. Um, Absolutely. But yes, yeah, th- there are definitely, you know, research and studies that, you know, show
1: that evidence it's so important for people, you know, like you said, people say, well, slavery is over, like everything's fine. We're back there. And it's like, no, there's so much more to it. And, you know, transgenerational trauma and epigenetics, there's so much more for people to learn. I feel like that information is just not, it's not easily accessible. Well,
0: well let's talk about that information. Like, because we, we all get it here, but why is that type of information, that research necessary in terms of applying it now to treating
2: Right. Because, I, you know, when we think about trauma, it Im- impacts um, our, our brains so significantly. Right. So it, sometimes mm-hmm. it's not a matter of, oh, you're feeling depressed. So let's just, you know, go outside. Right. No, we have to recognize that there has been some, you know, there are biolog- bio- uh, biological kind of like impacts, you know, to this. And so it's important to, to recognize so that way we know exactly what kind of approach we want to individualize for our clients as well. Um, Because again, if we are just sitting in a theoretical approach that does not contextualize, you know, people's cultural identities, then it's definitely not going to, you know, assess the trauma, right? And how culture uh, could could potentially affect that trauma, right? So I think that that's why that's important. I hope I answered that question.
0: You did. Absolutely. With all this in mind, can you just bring it back a little bit in your own experience? Have you come up against discovering your own generational trauma or your own culture, cultural barriers, like how you were brought up that stood in your way in terms of pursuing your path in mental health?
2: Um, I I think a lot of institutional and systemic things have been put in place that have been, you know, barriers, right? So not having access to, you know, certain opportunities as a child, right? So I didn't Mm -hmm. get to do the, you know, go abroad when my high school friends were going abroad because we financially couldn't afford it. And also because, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have the access to do, you know, certain things. And I also recognize that that set me up to have to take out so many student loans, right? I didn't have the opportunity to kind of like, you know, do X, Y, or Z. And my parents didn't have the opportunity to, you know, afford things because of their own history. You know, sometimes they barely made it out of, you know, where they, where they came from. Right. Mm -hmm. And so while that might not seem like a racial or even, you know, uh, ethnic kind of like issue, when we really think about it, again the systems that exist, right? Absolutely. The the ways in which people were not affording that access. My mom grew up in Brooklyn, New York in the 60s, right? Like so let's think about that for real. Like what were right. the access and what what were some things that were denied to her that she had to hold on to and had to just make waves and try to figure out that she was only able to provide me and my sister but so much. And so in that I had to kind of like learn the ropes essentially on my own because we were not thriving. We were just trying to survive. We were trying to survive in systems that did not have, you know, the opportunity for me to grow. You know, we talk Mm -hmm. about equality, but we don't really focus on the equity part, right? So, you know, everyone has Equal things, but is there equity? Do we have, if we have the equal things, does that get us to the same level? And often it didn't. You might hand us like, you know, $500 each, but the $500 might have to go to pay for the light bill versus someone mm-hmm. who's going to, you know, put that on a down payment for a car, right? So those are different things that have come up for me as I recognize that, like, okay, well, it's going to might take me a little bit longer to finish school here, or I have to work doubly hard to try to get a scholarship for something and that can just pay for my, you know, my food.
0: And was that something growing up, like, did you guys have a conversation at home? Was there a running dialogue, recognizing those things openly? Or is that something you had the wherewithal through your own process of saying, okay, these are the obstacles for this reason. And so I'm going to have to work harder than...
2: Some of these things were just, just life, right? So we weren't having these conversations. And it probably wasn't until, you know, as I grew older, as I started to do a lot more just individual research that I was like able to say oh oh yeah i had these you know these cha- these challenges that were really significant and so it's important for me to make sure that i'm sharing that knowledge you know with other folks you know what i mean yeah. so yeah it wasn't a discussion that was had just because i knew it was just like what we had to do you know what i mean yeah. and how, yeah. and how and those conversations were just difficult to have
1: yeah and i think to your point I think the awareness comes with like rewinding the clock a bit. Like we have to go back and consider things. And I I remember having a conversation with a white man about this. You know, and and I think his argument was like I've worked so hard to be where I am today. Like basically, I'm no different than like a man of but color. But he doesn't right?
0: know. Yeah, he doesn't know what he doesn't know, which is no.
1: And this is this is the most <sighs> simplistic like explanation of this, but you know, in this person's journey of how they got to where they are today, you know, it wasn't through a big college, it was through kind of like, you met someone, and I want to say like nepotism in a way, and you were kind of connected. And I just kept rewinding the timeline back to like generations. I'm like, oh, so this person you got a job through, you got this opportunity, was a a hundred percent racist human being and I know that and I won't, you know, disclose the, the, the people I'm I'm talking about, but I'm like, I know this person. This is a racist human being. So there's no way in hell that you and a black man had the equal, you know, opportunity to get this apprenticeship or whatever it was that allowed him that pathway to the career he has today. And again, that's like a very simplified version of it. But if you don't kind of go back in history and do and, and the the past generations, you don't have a full, I think appreciation of it, like the things that we're talking about.
2: Right. Absolutely. And again, that that speaks to, again, the difference between equality and equity, right? So, okay, yeah, you both pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, but you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps gets you here. Meanwhile, it gets somebody else here, right? So right. we have to think about that. And I think people have a hard, difficult time in understanding privilege, and I think we all have privilege, uh, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. I don't think that you know being a person of color being a black woman or just anyone who you know exists with my same identities you know has to see themselves as living in this struggle because i think we all have you know part you know privileged areas of ourselves but mm-hmm. people are so afraid to admit their privilege and what you can do with privilege is one to elevate other people as well as elevate yourself but people mm-hmm. are want to deny it so bad that they just miss the mark of like trying to provide equity
1: yeah, absolutely. There's a blind spot there. And that's when we talk about like implicit bias. There's so much stuff that people just, there's those like blind spot to it. And when I really like peel back the layers of that, and, I, and this is work I've done on myself, I feel like the blind spots for, for a white person can often be guilt, like, you don't even mm-hmm. want to acknowledge.
0: And you don't want to face that guilt. Absolutely. No. There's that shame that comes with realizing, like, how much funny. more. Uh, and it, and I almost feel like that's such a barrier for a lot of white people to sh- through, recognize and then alter their behavior because they're just so afraid of the shame and the work that's going to have to go into the self to shift all yeah. that, right?
2: yeah. I was just going to say, you know, and people like to say, well, it wasn't me. It was like my own ancestors, you know, who caused it. And I'm like, okay, yes, but how did we benefit from it, right? So, like, um, I'm trying to think of a good example of how I'm privileged, right? Like, I'm privileged in certain ways. And I can say, you know, it wasn't me. It was something else. But if I just acknowledge Right. if I can acknowledge yeah actually I do have a little bit more money than you know other folks around me so I might have more access to do X y or z and so I know that that's a privilege so oh I, I can give you a, a good example like for I just came off of supervision with some of my you know clinicians and you know I'm telling them hey make sure you take some time off you know it's a holiday season I don't want you to overwork yourself because I think that it's necessary to make sure that they don't burn out but I also mm-hmm. recognize that that comes from a very privileged you know position because Ah. Uh-huh you know, I can take a few days off and not have to necessarily worry about money. And while meanwhile, they might have to, you know, kind of really think about all the clients that they can't see during a specific time, right? So that's a privileged statement for me to say, but I can acknowledge that and I can say, okay, well, how else can I best support you then? If you can't take this time off, then how else can I best support you? Do you need, you know, to have me pay for lunch for a day? Or do you need me to, you know, provide you with, you know, extra support with this and supervision, whatever the case may be. So I can use my privilege to support other, you know, other folks, instead of being shamed that like, you know, I don't have the same perhaps financial situation, you know, that they might have. I mean, listen, we all deserve more money, but, you know, my (laughs) situation looks a little bit different than theirs.
0: Yeah. So with all that understood, like we, we recognize, we understand, at least in this conversation, this group of people that there has been a difference in, the way a person is formed through their their background, their genetics that would contribute to the need for mental health being addressed. How do you approach addressing that mental health differently? Like mm-hmm. what are the key factors when working with this population?
2: Mm-hmm. So I often say, you know, I have lots of black women clients. And I can and I will say like, listen, we might look alike, we might sit here and you know, kiki about something, but what is it that you think is important for me to know about you? Right? Mm. Because while we might look the same, I know that our experience is going to be different. What is important for me to know? Right, and I always challenge my clients to let me know what works out well for them and what doesn't, so that way we can really uncover that um, in the session. Also, I try to any approach that I use, I try to make sure that it's you know culturally sensitive because just because I'm a black woman doesn't know that I know everything about you know multicultural issues, and so I I admit that. And I allow for them to kind of tell me more about who they are because they are the expert on their lives. But I also want to make sure any intervention or approach that I bring into the session was really kind of like grounded in some type of, you know, conceptualization related to multiculturalism.
1: Yeah, that's that's important because I remember there was, I had a pretty, I think, enlightening experience when I moved to working in, I was still with Argus, but I ended up in the Harlem facility. Um, And I was facilitating a group. And again, this population, a majority of these individuals were court mandated, right, and had been in and out of jail numerous times. And the intervention I'm using in this group is CBT, it's cognitive behavioral therapy. And and what that is, is, is learning to kind of change the narrative that we have about certain things in, in our belief systems. And here I am facilitating this group. And there's this This young, um, uh, I don't want to say he's a boy. He was, uh, I don't know, he's probably 20 something years old. Um, He was a black guy. He was talking to me about, you know, being incarcerated and like getting off marijuana. And he basically made this statement that like he never even envisioned that not going to jail or smoking marijuana was even a possibility for him. And it was just so enlightening for me because I was like, whoa. I have never even thought about life like that and just to consider his upbringing his environments and just his cultural in general that that was his thought process so there was it was hard to use a CBT intervention in this context because we're coming from two different worlds I'd like to argue that
2: While I, you know, I I think that, you know, CBT is obviously one of our most evidence-based approaches to use. And I think that, you know, when you think about it, yeah, we could have just sat there and talked about his cognitions and his behaviors and, you know, everything else, right? Related to CBT. Mm -hmm.
0: Can you give me a, wait, just pause just for listeners sake, give me a condensed, super simplified definition of CBT.
1: Sure, um, I'm a CBT. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> Cognitive behavioral therapy is essentially changing the way you think, with the knowledge that our behaviors are based on our thoughts and our emotions. So, if I have this continuous behavior I want to change, I have to kind of rewind back and, and consider the thoughts and the emotions I'm having, because most of the time, the thoughts we're having are not that accurate. They're sometimes very irrational thoughts.
0: So, like, with the thought of, like, your thoughts drive you, like, your thoughts drive your behavior.
2: Okay. Gotcha. If that makes sense. Yep. And so we can sit here and say, well, let's just change your thinking, right? But if you have endured, you know, trauma, if you have other people, if you've existed in this, you know, space where, you know, the reason why you have this particular thought and is going to continue to be kind of like perpetuated, like it's hard to just say, Look, let's just change your thought process. Let's just change the thought that, you know, you're not going to go to jail. Right. But if everyone around right. you is going to jail and if everyone around you is saying you're going to go to jail, then, you know, how do you easily change that thought? I think it can be sometimes very insensitive, you know, for folks. And so we have to then, you know, perhaps introduce other techniques and I'm all about technical integration. So, you know, how do we introduce, you know, certain techniques with CBT, such as let's create, you know, a narrative that feels good for you. Right. Mm. You know, what is that narrative that you, you had, right. And let's deconstruct that and create a narrative that fits you and still kind of like follow that, that CBT model if we need to. So, but you're right though. It's not just like changing the way you think and that's it.
0: No, I mean, it seems like, It seems like such a huge obstacle. And like, we've more recently heard this spoken about uh, in pop culture, but the reality of like the, the little black boy turning into a black man, like more often than not, the model they're seeing and children learn through what they see, the representation of what they're seeing is because of systematic issues. The path is from, you know, birth to eventually jail, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. that becomes this very popular thing in the black community. So to have someone envision something so outside of that, mm-hmm. that for themselves, because we're obviously not able, haven't been able to address the cultural issues creating that pathway.
2: Correct. And so I like to operate from... Um, a strength-based perspective and not a deficit one. So while mm-hmm. I do recognize like the you know the barriers, the, the the systemic oppression that occurs, and all these other things, you know, in order to really you know navigate trauma, it's you know about understanding one, understanding it um, psychoeducationally, but also how you can make sure you're, you're talking about resilience, right. And then also focusing on the strengths because what I, what I want to, you know, steer away from also is kind of seeing marginalized population, marginalized populations as populations being so barren or without, or having no opportunities for, you know, growth. And so I, I see the the, mm-hmm. the the history of things but also i take the opportunity to focus on the resilience focus on the strengths and focus focus on the new narratives that fit that particular you know person yeah. or group of people
1: i love that i mean i had you know just on the topic of cbt i had another experience with this gentleman he was one of the kindest patients i ever worked with and he was on federal probation and this guy had such a long-standing history with um the being in prison and When I met with him, he had a new charge and he was facing three to four years and he was he was going back to jail. And we were in an individual session and I'm doing CBT again. Like, hey, once you go back to jail, (laughs) here I am, like coaching him on once you go back to jail, if you think about it differently, you know, and he's like, he's like, ma'am, with all due respect, like your CBT is not gonna work on me. Like You've never been to jail before. You have no idea what it's like. There's no CBT. You're in there. You're surviving. So if, Mm -hmm. you know, he's like, if a motherfucker bumps into me, I'm going to survive. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm not using any of this CBT. And he just stopped me in my tracks. I'm like, it was another moment I had to reflect on. I have no fucking clue what I'm talking about. (laughs) I'm a trained therapist, but I'm with an individual who has a very different cultural background and life experience. And these therapeutic techniques are ineffective. And that is part of my issue with that particular organization because I don't think
2: I don't think they did a good job of trying to make sure that you know we were we were well versed you know to to support you know folks who were so different from us and that's why that is you know pretty much everything that I talk about or anything that I teach about or um, even in my sessions is also about like how are we seeing this this client as a whole right yeah, how are yeah. we making sure that we're fully seeing this client?
0: Well, what what would have been required, like, in Randy's situation? Is there additional training she could have went through? Is there exposure to the environment? Like, what?
2: Yeah, I think, one, I think it it really extends, you know, I think the relationship building is key, right? So, Mm -hmm. one incredible... therapeutic approach is what's called relational cultural theory. Um, And it really focuses on the relationships that you can, you know, develop with, with folks. And because at the, at the end of the day, that's really what people have to kind of like rely on in addition to their resilience and their strengths, but relationships are what's really key. And I feel as though, and I don't want to use, I don't need to use your example, Randy, but you know, when we really start to develop a relationship with clients and not just seeing them as like, oh, this is just a client or just a st- statistic. I need to understand who this person is. They need to be able to trust me. They need to know who I am. Let's talk about these differences. Let's make sure yeah. that we're clear about what I'm understanding, what I'm not understanding. If that is not happening, then it's going to be easy to settle into, okay, I'm just going to use CBT, right? Instead right. of really connecting you know, with that client.
0: But in that environment, like, and this is where the insurance issues come into play, it comes into play in all forms of medical treatment. But in that environment, you're I'm guessing correct me if I'm wrong, you're probably over inundated with the number of cases you have and how do you no and, idea. that's what i mean so like how do you allot the time like this seems like this big overhaul need to readdress how things are covered how people can make a living doing the work you do and still treat clients holistically so so fully in doing that's exactly true. what you said candace recognizing the
2: whole person yeah, well that's my problem, that's my issue, and that's why I, <laughs> yeah. This is and I and I so I you know, I teach a lot of counselors and you know, a lot of folks want to go off into private practice, which is understandable. Um but you know, because agency work is demanding and it it, it really misses the opportunity to really connect with your clients, right? They, you know, you a lot of agency work is really focused on the business end of things versus yeah. the the clinical part of it. So we, it, yeah. our, Argus was a great example of just having like a caseload of like 80 folks or whatever crazy craziness and, you know, not being able to connect. You see them for 15 minutes and keep it moving. Let me, yeah. okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop
1: name dropping. So that way we don't get this <laughs>
2: organization in trouble.
1: Oh, but, but, not, I mean, like I'm, I'm with you, the burnout was so real and there wasn't and, and it was like, there's not, these conversations weren't happening. When I, I got another job, I went to Washington Heights, um, I won't mention the name of the place but when I started working there again it was you know I'm working in Washington Heights I'm a white woman and most of my caseload was people of color and um I had this new patient come in and he was half black half white And he started his intake. I I think we were doing an intake. And one of the questions was like, what's your race? And had, you know, your sexuality, what do you identify as? And he's like, why does this even matter? And already he got defensive. And then he went into this whole spiel about how he a lot of his career was kind of stunted. And a lot of his superiors were white people. And he literally said with blonde hair and blue eyes. And I'm like, I'm feeding off all of this like energy. So I just stopped him. And I go, you know what, I go, I'm, I am literally what you're talking about. I'm blonde hair, blue eyes. I'm gonna be your therapist. Like, what do you what do you think about that? How do you feel about that? And it was it was really cool because we had this open dialogue, and I didn't just jump into like, what does the textbook tell me I should do in this situation? Exactly. I just I just you know I freestyled. I was like, this is just an awkward elephant in the room. Let's address it. And luckily, I also was paired with my supervisor, who was a black woman, and it was it was such an incredible experience to get to process that with her. Um, And I just, I learned so much, but it, it, I mean, you're absolutely right. You can't, some of these things we we've learned in our, as therapists is not what you learned in school and it's not what you learned in the textbooks. It's the field. It's a real life experience. It's Relationships. And I think just being authentic with other human beings. I think that's
2: a really great example of just like how we are conditioned to just like go down the list of all the things we're supposed to ask and not just like really sitting with like, wait, well, how do you feel about working with me then? You know what I'm saying? So like that is something that I think is so huge. Yeah.
0: I, yeah, I don't know. I like, I love this. I love that you guys both come full heart and open to the work you do and you want to be doing that. I'm just like, it's a bigger issue. So it's not something we could cover talking about really, but like how, cause I'm just seeing like, Okay, so basically you go into these facilities and you have overwork, underpaid, mostly newcomers to the field kind of getting their train up time. Right. Like you're training up there. Most of them having the idea that, you know, to be making the money for all the education I put into this, I'm going to at some point have to go to private practice. So this demographic of people that. Are only being introduced to therapy based on court mandate or whatever the situation is, they're only ever going to get that level of service. And it's, it's disheartening. It's (laughs) just because I, you know, obviously I'm a believer in mental health practice and I just, yeah, I don't I don't know. Yeah, I mean,
2: I, I agree. <laughs> and I think that this is where advocacy comes in. Part of our ethical code as counselors is to make sure that we're advocating because, mm-hmm. you know, right now this is the status quo and hopefully this won't always be the status quo. And so, you know, we have to do more um, engagement with, you know, speaking to our legislators and all these other types of things. That's what's really important. It's not going to change overnight, but what we mm-hmm. have recognized is that things have changed over time. So that's great. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, it has put me in a position that, you know, I've created or I'm create in the midst of like finalizing like this model for my practice, where it's more of a teaching slash training practice and not just like, oh, you just you see clients. But, you know, people who start off as interns can get that um, adequate experience can then, you know. Um, Work on getting their hours, and then working on getting licensed, and in such a way that they feel like they're getting all the necessary like information and support and experience that they need. Um, because mm-hmm. I think that burnout is the shittiest thing, it, and it's so real, particular for novice counselors. And people don't care because that's just been like the status quo for so long. And I'm like, no, something has got to change. We'll yep. have to start changing on more micro levels before we can really get there, but it has to change some kind of way. Especially Absolutely.
0: with the mental health workers. Like, you you guys should know healthy boundaries. Come on,
2: get it together. But when, <laughs> when bills are due or when, I know, you know. I totally
0: get it. I totally get yeah. it, believe me. In my field, I've definitely worked for free many a years. Like, I got you on that.
1: No, I mean, the yeah. burnout was so real. Like, where Candace and I used to work. I mean, working in those clinics, like, I, I have to be honest. Like my mental health was pretty unstable at that point. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, you're so like st- you're so overwhelmed with. I mean, the clinical work, the administrative work is a whole other piece yeah. of it. But you're so stressed, and then you're just moving through next patient, next patient. And you're like, I haven't even had time to calm down to actually be present with this person. And it was God. It's it's hard. It's really hard. And as a clinician your job is to be like rock solid for that person and, and provide that secure base. So it, it does yeah. make treating certain people hard. It's really hard. So
0: is it more funding? What is it?
1: So this okay. is what I th- I think that's a great
2: question. So I always tell folks, um, especially when I teach practicum and internship, when you go to your practicum or internship sites, find out how they are funded because the way that the, the site is funded will dictate how things are run. And so, mm. um, if it's going to be more government funded by like through Oasis or, you know, other types of, you know, grants or such, they again, they're coming from business oriented people, mm-hmm. not always clinical you know minded folks. So they want to see certain things. They need to see certain numbers. So it's going to, yeah. you know, kind of like work out a certain way. If you think of a, an agency that's more insurance based. Insurance has a lot of, you know, um, ways to dictate how, you know, services will be provided. Oh, yeah. you're, you can't have too many 60 minute sessions. You have to have more 45 minute sessions. You can't get reimbursed for this particular code. You got to give a diagnosis in order to get reimbursed. Right. And so that changes, again, the way that you kind of like show up for, you know, clients. This is yeah. why we're seeing a lot of people stray away from, you know, um, working with insurances and wanting to do private practice and be full, full fee because you have more of that autonomy, right? And it's yeah. obviously it puts more of a, a headache or a burden on clients who have to pay it, but that's that's honestly one of the best ways to, you know, establish, you know, better relationships and more progress.
0: I mean, just to give you guys the credit in that path, like I can say I've I've done therapy on and off through my entire adult life and up until recently when I've had the ability to pay out of pocket for a private practice service, I I would sit in therapy sessions in the past and be like, all right, you're not giving me anything I don't already got. Like, you know, like I just, I, I wasn't getting a lot of tools and help to navigate that I couldn't get from a self-help book. But then now I'm being challenged in a way. And it's oh. because he's high end mm-hmm. private practice. I'm mm-hmm. paying out of pocket. It sucks to pay that amount every month. But fucking worth it Mm
2: -hmm. so yeah and it and and you know i don't know if this is a conversation that you've had on your your podcast already but you know making sure that if people are going to pay out of pocket you know making sure that they can still submit super bills to their insurance so they can get reimbursed in some kind of way um but yeah that's why a lot of people are trying to the insurance is just such a fucking scam i i can't even i know i know (laughs) but when, when you when we think about you know and i i i'd like to offer insurance, you know, I'm on some insurance panels. And I, because I want people to have that accessibility. If I'm going to be a person who's going to, you know, want to make sure that any marginalized population can get that support, I want to make sure that there is that accessibility, not to be a disservice to myself, because I still got to pay my bills and everything like that. But I think it's important that, you know, I'm offering that, that accessibility through insurance or sliding scale, and sometimes pro bono work.
0: Love that sliding scale. I've used that plenty
2: in life. yeah absolutely
0: <laughs> um, okay, just to bring it back more to you, can you give me a backstory on what because you gotta really want to do this work if you're doing this work <laughs> Can you give me a background of what brought you to working in the mental health Field, if you had your own experience growing up or what what was my, it?
2: My experience is, my story is so boring and I tell people this all <laughs> the time. It's so cookie cutter. Like I was a, the type of person that was at a young age, people would talk to me and I would like give them some advice and it would work and I'd be like, Damn okay, I'm feeling myself. I got <laughs> this. Um, and so, and then I was also reading like in eighth grade reading. My uncle was in college. So he had a psychology book. I was like reading his psychology books and was finding, finding so much interest in that. So, you know, mm-hmm. that was definitely my interest. Um, sh- you know, went to straight into psychology and, and double majored in psychology in Spanish in undergrad after that went to grad school. So like, it was just very organic. It, it, there was not one specific moment um, that I was like, oh, I really want to be a mental health counselor. I knew that I always wanted to sit and see a client sitting in a couch across from me. Like I just always had that, oh. in, that vision.
1: Oh, I love
0: yeah. that. How did your family, did your family support your path?
2: Yes. Yeah, um, I think my mom always wanted me to be a doctor, little does she a medical doctor. But I'm still a doctor, but whatever. Um, but she always wanted me to be a doctor. But again, I think that that also comes from you know again those systemic things and kind of going into being a lawyer or a medical doctor was a way to a, a, an out, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. But she did support you know you know me going to, to to college and then me going to grad school again because again I had to pay for it truly myself through student loans. Um, so, um, she was there for that support. I mean, everyone was essentially, and That's my awesome. partner, like recently, you know, when I, I, my private practice has been, I've had it now for six years. And like, even when I decided to do that, like, you know, always just supportive of just like what the, those trials and tribulations, you know, consisted of. So, that's awesome. Yeah, so my my, my story is boring. I, I like to say that it's boring because it it sounds like I, since I was a little kid, this is what I wanted to do. But yeah, so that's. I mean, I think you're
0: one of the lucky ones for sure. Because I think a big struggle in a lot of people's lives is like, what is my purpose? But you yeah. you knew yours. You followed yours. So that's great.
1: Well, thank you so much, Candice, for coming on. Yeah. I'm so happy to have you we on. I mean, I have. I, I feel like when we were talking about this podcast, we were just envisioning like, I don't know, powerful people, and like I have a thing for just like powerful women, and I'm like, Candace, let's get Candace yeah. on. So I, I, and I know my... you are. <laughs> um, So yeah, thank you so much for taking out the time and, and no, talking to thanks us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Is definitely. there
0: any anything you want to leave us with, like food for thought, something that people just in general can start to consider, just interacting in the world when it comes to all of this?
2: Oh, that's, that's such a loaded question. And I don't know how to answer that, but um, I'm, I, I mean, I, I feel like I'm always happy to kind of like talk about these things some more. Um, so the, the, I guess just, I don't know. I I really don't. I don't think I have like any one thing, but I'm always happy to answer questions. So if people do want to reach out, they can, you know, feel free to do that. Our practice website is clarityandwellness.com and you'll be able to find out more information. If you are interested in becoming a client, you can submit a form that way. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can reach me at Candice, C-A-N-D-I-C-E at clarityandwellness.com. Um, We're also in Instagram trying to get that back up and running. So it's, you know, at clarity and wellness underscore. Um, So that's our, that's the best way to kind of like connect with me slash us.
0: Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. I know I took some, some good notes away in terms of, I don't
2: know. I hope so. (laughs) I like to just talk. So I don't, sometimes I don't even know what I just said. No, you
0: were so So informative (laughs) and we appreciate your time, time, giving your time to us. Thanks
1: again for having me. Thank you everyone for joining us for this episode of Cracked Up. Angelica and I are very excited for future episodes where we are going to talk about a variety of issues, mental health related, addiction, recovery, childhood trauma. We'd love to hear from you guys. If you have any feedback, any requests on topics you want to hear or learn about, please find me at Randy Mental Health on Instagram. My handle is Randy spelled R-A-N-D-I underscore mental health underscore. Angelica, where can everyone find you? You
0: can also find me on Instagram. I'm at Jella Hester. That's Jella, G-E-L-L-A. No space Hester, H-E-S-T-E-R. Thanks again for joining us. And we'll talk to you next week.
1: This podcast is presented solely for educational and entertainment purposes. It is not intended as a substitute for any type of medical advice.